Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark with your weekly serving of politics. If a Labour MP is good for anything, it's got to be trying to stoke up an early general election to get Labour Party into power. And culture. I can't think of another artist who's been so consistently productive over the last, well, nearly 60 years or so. Later in the broadcast, we're going to speak to Samira Shackle about her latest piece for a magazine on the changing face of Pakistani politics and the 23-year-old activist who's rising to prominence and taking on the country's authorities. Can Manzoor Pashtin and his movement help to change Pakistan for the better? What we can see is that when there are rallies... They're attended by thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, and these have taken place all over Pakistan over the course of this year. More of that very soon, but first I'm here in the studio with Samir Rahim, our culture editor, and Alex Dean, our politics correspondent. And first, Samir, uh, this week you've been enjoying the return of a familiar voice. Yes, that familiar rasping uh, tones of uh, Bob Dylan. So we've got the bootleg series, volume 14, uh, <laughs> Blood on the Tracks. Um, more blood, more tracks is the is the new volume. Um, so, so Dylan's 1975 album was a classic uh, when it came out, classic breakup album. I think it was the first Dylan album that I ever uh, listened to in my early uh, 20s, and I know it so, so well. Um, and now... Um, sort of the initial recordings, the offcuts, the different variations and versions of classic songs like Tangled Up in Blue and If You See Her Say Hello have been released all for a a reasonable £99 box set. Or you can, as I've done, sampled it on Spotify, uh, (laughs) about 10 10 tracks. I mean, for the Dylan obsessives, and I don't count myself uh, as one of them because to be a proper Dylan obsessive, you need to have listened to all the bootlegs and variations and um, know everything there is about him. Um, Ed Docks, the novelist, has written about it uh, for Prospect being a Dylan obsessive very well. But I am someone who um, loves Dylan and uh, thinks he's a genuinely great artist. And what's so fantastic about him is that he's still going and he's still going strong. Never-ending tour. The never-ending tour. I, I see today that, you know, you can you can hear Bob Dylan and his band at the Johnny Mercer Theatre in Savannah, Georgia, tonight, um, if, if you wanted to. And, and, and when I was coming of age and starting to listening to music in 97, Time Out of Mind, his album came out. And that's a fantastic album. And that um, really got me into Dylan. Um, and it felt like a new, fresh album of course he'd been going since the late 1950s even before then and even now 
you know, uh, he's producing more work, um, going on tour and producing and, and more more great songs. Uh, I can't think of another artist who's been so consistently productive mm. over the last, um, well, nearly... 60 years or so. I mean, the quality has been mixed, hasn't it? I mean, the singing obviously has been appalling at times. And the, I mean, the thing about Blood on the Tracks was that came after a kind of album, a couple of albums that seemed to be taking the mickey after the real kind of famous stuff, uh, Highway 61 and so on in the 60s. You'd got this kind of go away into the countryside and sing country music with a put on voice for a bit, didn't you? And then he came back. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, oh, I love John Wesley Harding, though. I think that's a great underrated uh, underrated album. Um, it's got, actually, um, Dylan's best Christian song, I uh, Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, uh, which is not from his actual Christian period, mm. uh, So, um, which came a bit later. Um, uh, yeah, and Blood on the Track is such a great album, and... It. Uh, I know people who uh, Dylan skeptics say that you know is he fully in control of what he's saying and what he's doing. But if you listen to the new version of uh, Tangled Up in Blue, which is a sort of slightly earlier version, um, you can just see how he's playing with the lyrics, um, experimenting with different perspectives, first person, the third person, and all the rest of it. The actual album seventy five. Um, uh, blood on the tracks it was it was slightly overproduced there's a slight sort of sort of mm. quality to it that it's a bit um studio yeah it's a bit of studio and this one is much more stripped back it sounds a lot more like blonde on blonde mm. um in terms of it's just him with his um guitar it's a bit more acoustic which which i which i prefer actually and as you say a time of breakup a time of kind of raw um emotion but of course the other thing in, in your world that um, marks dylan out is that he won the nobel prize for literature as a poet effectively and what we see um in these re- recordings is that he was messing around with the lyrics he's continued to change them sometimes in live performance and so it's it's not t.s Eliot, is it i mean he, 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 it's a living breathing kind of poetry if it's poetry um absolutely interesting you mentioned t.s Eliot because one of his uh, dylan's most sort of um his most academic uh, uh, champions has been Christopher Ricks, who has edited T.S. Eliot, and he's also edited Bob Dylan's lyrics and written about uh, Bob Dylan. And I suspect he was one of the instigators behind Dylan getting uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature. It's amazing how uncontroversial the idea of Dylan being literature is. I think in 2008-9, in a Cambridge Practical Criticism paper, there was um, uh, lyrics from, uh, from Amy Winehouse, um, that students were asked to analyse, and that became a, a story. The fact that um, you were also asked to, uh, the students were also asked to analyse um, uh, Boots of Spanish Leather by Bob Dylan wasn't even commented commented on. It's just taken as as read now that Dylan is uh, a great poet of our age. Samir, um, what's that story about Dylan being asked who his favourite poet was, and he said Smokey Robinson or, or something? Dylan is one of those characters who's He's a joker man. He he will tell you different things all the time. He'll say, I'm just a song and dance man. I don't really know anything about anything. I just churn out these words without without meaning to. Or um, he'll 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 totally undercut all the people who take him incredibly seriously, um, which is perfectly right to do. Um, at the same time, his work is infused with sort of biblical imagery and Shakespeare and uh, poetry as well, as well as the sort of blues tradition from which he um, emerges from um, as well. In the way that he's managed to sort of keep himself distant, private, mysterious 
always never part of a group, has kept himself individual over the years, is one of his great achievements, I think. I mean, in the early 60s, he was the great protest song writer and, you know, some of those songs absolutely, um, you know, classics of the age. But he quickly went away from that. Um, and he just has gone on so many different sort of reinventions and journeys that I think, um, yeah, he's an inspiration to us all in many ways. OK, let's swap horses now. And from a individual minded, creative Alex, you've been thinking when it comes to the Brexit crunch about the potential for some individual minded MPs to swing things. Not sure how often Lisa Nandy's been compared with Bob Dylan. Um, I think, if, you know, she's listened to this, she'll, she'll probably be thrilled. Um, but I spoke to her yesterday. She's a really interesting one, actually. What we're going to see over the coming months is if the government does manage to strike a Brexit deal, it's going to bring it back to Parliament and MPs are going to have a say on it. The Labour leadership, of course, is saying that it's going to vote against the deal. It sets up these six tests, which in my view were designed to never be met, basically. And, you know, if, if the deal meets the meets the six tests, then then uh, the leadership will support it. But I think from the start, it's been incredibly unlikely that that's ever going to happen. Uh, and it's still looking unlikely. So the Labour leadership is going to vote against the deal. Some Tory Brexiteers might vote against the deal. Maybe some Tory Remainers. One of the most interesting segments of Parliament, though, is pragmatic Labour <laughs> Labour people who are kind of in the middle and who maybe back Remain in 2016 but are in heavily leave constituencies. So not the kind of Kate Hoey, like, I'm for Brexit full yeah, time. Yeah, that, 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 that's uh, a very different tradition, I think. Um, there's, a, there's a few who are in this more interesting middle ground who are really wrestling with what to do. Um, and when I spoke to Lisa... Uh, on the phone yesterday, it was clear that she's having a real battle with her conscience because she wants to bring the Tory government down. Uh, she wants to, you know, stoke up the uncertainty, precipitate a general election, whatever you think, um, you know, the consequences would be of, of voting against this Tory Brexit. Um, and she'll be under immense pressure to do so. And obviously, you know, the whole party whipping machine and so on. But equally, she represents a heavily leave constituency, Wigan. Um, and from what she was saying to me, it doesn't sound at all certain that she's going to vote against the government. It's a very interesting case, isn't it? Because we know there's some people who are notionally Labour MPs but desperately want to avoid a um, a, a, a kind of Jeremy Corbyn government privately. She's not one of those. You remember a few months ago, Tom, when there were some Brexity Labour MPs who voted with the government, I think it was on the customs union, and were later targeted for deselection because they were viewed as having uh, backed up the government in a way that blocked an early election. There was a consensus that if the government were defeated on the customs union, it might lead to an early election. Um, And it it felt like if a Labour MP is good for anything, it's got to be trying to stoke up an early general election to get Labour Party into power. And so there was all this talk about deselection of Frankfield and Hoey and so on. so it's it's a very, very big decision for Lisa Nandy uh, and some others like Caroline Flint. It's interesting, Samir, though, isn't it, to sort of think, like, of course MPs owe it to their constituents, and of course lots of those constituents in cases like Don Valley, like um, uh, Wigan voted leave, but, like, if we're left with a Brexit that no-one's particularly happy with, never mind the kind of where you stand on Jeremy Corbyn and the big P politics... As an MP, would you want ownership of that? Because it might be that a lot of those voters are going to have buyer's remorse. Well, exactly. And I think 
the constituencies that you're talking about are, are safe Labour and are going to remain safe Labour, aren't they? So no matter what happens, really, not, not unless there's a dramatic realignment. So do you think that someone like Lisa Nandy is weighing up in her mind at what point um, she can le- leap off the Brexit battle bush, as it were, and sort of a- a go her own way? Is it a mu- as much to do with political calculation as it is to do with uh, loyalty to constituents yeah i think it is with some of them but lisa i just got the impression that she weighs the opinions of her constituents incredibly heavily um i'm not at all naive (laughs) i understand that for politicians a lot of the time it's about calculation maybe even i'm a bit of a cynic in that respect actually but just speaking to lisa um i got the impression that that she takes the, the pro-leave views of her constituents very heavily indeed. A lot of this, Alex, is going to depend on whether or not people accept the Prime Minister's framing, which has been and continues to be, it's my way or the highway. Because people will be saying, I've got to have this Brexit because otherwise I'm going to have no deal. What's your sense of whether MPs are accepting that is the choice they've got now? My sense is that for the most part they aren't accepting it's the choice but that doesn't mean (laughs) that doesn't mean they're certain it's not the choice that so speaking to lisa her sense wasn't that if mps voted down the deal it would lead to a no deal outcome it was that if mps voted down the deal it could lead to a no deal outcome and that was problematic enough um so they're weighing the probabilities um and i think while i personally am of the view that parliament would probably intervene to stop a no deal outcome there's something that's really worth remembering in all this which is that no deal is the sleepwalking option it's stuff has to occur actively occur to stop no deal because it's pre-programmed into the system um and that (laughs) simply that fact alone makes me worried about about the high likelihood of no deal compared to what you want it to be so you've got that risk you've got the quotes risk of invalidating the referendum result putting it all together as you look at things now, and you've talked about these different groups, remain conservatives, remain uh, leave conservatives and hardline Brexit, Labour and, and wavering Labour. At the moment, given our best guess as what Theresa May might come back, do you think she's going to squeak this through? Or? With the caveat that prediction is obviously a mugs game in politics at the moment, and also with the caveat that Regular listeners will probably be aware I'm changing my prediction every other week. Um, Right now, my sense is that if there is a deal to bring back to Parliament, it will probably squeak through because the hardcore Tory Brexiteers will blink and enough, uh, you know, Lisa Nandy, Caroline Flint type Labour MPs, along with the hardcore Brexit Labour MPs, will go on May's side. Thank you, Alex, and also Samir. And now we go over to our main interview this week, which, as I mentioned, is Samira Shackle, who is speaking to Steve Bloomfield, who's Prospect's deputy editor, about the rise of Manzor Pashtin, a young Pakistani activist whose movement is gathering extraordinary support amongst the young and also getting some unwanted attention from the Pakistani military authorities. Can he change the country using a microphone and social media? Samira Shackle, welcome to Prospect. Hello. Uh, let's start by talking about uh, Manzul Pashtin now, who he is, uh, how this movement has got to this stage uh, and how popular it is right now. Yeah, so he is a young man who's from the tribal areas of Pakistan. Uh, he's 23, I think turning 24 this month, actually. 
um, which is an incredibly young age to be leading this this kind of mass movement that's really, um, it's got huge, huge kind of grassroots appeal. So he's basically campaigning for equal civil rights for the Pashtun ethnic group of which he's a member. And that, that ethnic group is mainly based in the northwest of Pakistan and in Afghanistan. And they have suffered unduly, is his argument, from Pakistan's war on terror policies and from uh, the kind of massive rise in terrorism that Pakistan's seen over the last two decades. And as you say, he's very young for someone to be leading such a movement. Just how big is this movement now inside Pakistan? It's. I think the thing is, it's quite hard to say uh, in in specific numbers because there is so much censorship around the group. Um, what it, what we can see is that when there are rallies, they're attended by thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, and these have taken place all over Pakistan over the course of this year. Um, so the Pashtun ethnic group, as I said, that they're, they're primarily based um, in northwestern Pakistan, but they're also all over the country. So that's where they originate, northwestern Pakistan, but they live in every city. Uh, they're the second largest ethnic group in the country. Um, and even those who don't live in the tribal areas or the northwestern areas uh, where they, there's been a big military operation have experienced things like humiliation at checkpoints, harsh policing operations in the major cities. So there's a huge groundswell of support. And what was interesting in your piece is how you talked about, you know, yes, there are maybe tens of thousands coming to their rallies, but actually they seem to be more influential even than that during the last election earlier this year. Many of the main parties took up uh, a lot of their causes, didn't they? Well, when they first started uh, protesting was earlier this year. It was in February that the movement really got going in earnest. And it was within a couple of months, I think, all the main civilian politicians had seen uh, that, you know, this wasn't going away and had at least paid lip service to their their demands and their, which are all kind of very much couched in legal frameworks in the Pakistani constitution. That's very much where it's rooted. And so they did get support from all three of the, of the major parties, but it didn't really translate into kind of solid manifesto or policy commitments in as much as those exist in Pakistan anyway. Let's go back to the early days of Manzur's life. Uh, tell us about where he grew up and what his uh, what his first formative years were like. Yeah, so he is uh, he's very interesting in in a way. He's he's um, as I said, twenty three. So he's really come of age uh, in the post nine eleven era, and in many ways, his life story is quite typical of people from Waziristan, which is uh, part of the tribal areas of Pakistan. So he grew up in a big family. He's one of eight, uh, not particularly well off. Uh, they're from a village in South Waziristan. Um, they were displaced, um, I think, four times, uh, it's, uh, something like that, um, over the course of the last 15 years or so. And that was to do with pal- Pakistani military incursions uh, into the tribal areas to kind of root out terrorist groups. And they were displaced, go back to their village, displaced again. So it was kind of cycle of displacement and all sorts of other um, kind of horrible living conditions that go with that. There's curfews, uh, there's huge loss of life from terrorism and also from airstrikes, which um, although were supposed to be targeted at militant hideouts, were experienced by civilians as a form of collective punishment. And he became quite political, I guess, early on, except he be- believed that what was happening to people in his area was wrong and he didn't just accept it. 
Yeah, so the way he described it was that everyone in the area was terrorised when he was growing up and, and they knew that you didn't really speak out about this stuff. Um, so, of course, there's the the huge threat from terror groups who moved, the Taliban and others, who moved their whole kind of infrastructure over to these tribal areas from Afghanistan after the US-led 2001 invasion. So there was that huge threat. There was also the 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 extra threat from the military as i've just um as i've just explained uh, and many people in the area uh, really do see militants and military as being intimately connected uh, particularly there's the well-known policy that pakistan's army does support terror groups who who help their foreign policy aims in kashmir and afghanistan all over the place uh, but that was the point that he said was just um no one really spoke about because you were bringing yourself uh, bringing yourself to the attention of the military state apparatus is a is a huge risk so it was when he got to university that he really kind of um began to get political got involved in student politics and started talking about this stuff in quite an open way uh, much to the uh, chagrin of his family and then there was the killing of another young man which really spurred this latest movement Yes, exactly. So um, Manzoor and his group of friends were already running a small human rights movement um, based in the tribal areas, drawing attention to uh, human rights abuses specifically against members of their tribe, uh, which is a really large tribe at 600,000 people. Uh, And then earlier this year in January, a young man also from the tribal areas, also from uh, the same tribe as Manzoor, was killed by police in Karachi. And this was quite typical, actually. there's been a huge crackdown um, since 2014. So that has, uh, it's been partly a renewed military incursion in the tribal areas, but it's also been a series of sweeping urban operations in cities like Karachi and Lahore, all over the place, really. Um, those uh, urban operations have involved mass scale forced disappearances and uh, extrajudicial killings. So in the first year of the operation alone in 2014 to 2015, 800 people were killed extrajudicially by police in Karachi. Uh, so most of these didn't make headlines, but this guy, um, Nakibullah, he was called, he was so obviously not a terrorist. He was, um, he had quite a big social media following. He uh, he used to post pictures of himself modelling different clothes and beards, trims and hairstyles. He was an aspiring model. So it was very, very easy to say this guy doesn't have links to terror groups. And it just seemed to be a bit of a spark and caused a lot of outrage, which Manzoor and his group of human rights activists um, were ready to, to kind of pounce on. And they've managed to pounce on it despite the fact that his group and others like him uh, certainly don't have free access to the media. There's all sorts of media censorship in Pakistan. There's all sorts of uh, crackdowns on the political space. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, so I think um, in in Pakistan recently, um, over the last sort of five years or so, so 2013 was the first ever democratic transition between one elected government and another, the first in Pakistan's history, and this year was the second. Uh, But that's happened against a backdrop of the military, uh, who are the real kind of power brokers in Pakistan and have ruled the country directly for half of its history, uh, really seeking to cement their control of public life. So while they're not staging a coup, it was widely seen this election as as the military is really kind of showing their hand um, and seeking to influence the result and I think the the PTM which is the acronym for for Manzoor's movement um, they really blindsided the military apparatus this was a group that was very directly trying to hold the military to account calling for this incredibly powerful institution to be accountable 
Um, and I think that is something that's so kind of transgressive in Pakistani society. You know, they, you had rallies with people chanting, oh, the real terrorists are the ones in uniform. It's hard to overstate how incendiary that is to, to make that kind of statement publicly. Uh, you know, even in um, when Pakistan's press has been at, been at its freest, uh, there are certain topics that people self-censor on and know are, are not really safe to cover. And so once this movement started gathering pace, there was a very kind of... Um, fairly direct campaign of censorship. You had major newspapers uh, removing columns from top columnists from their from their websites, um, apparently under pressure from the security services. Um, you had these massive rallies not really being covered at all on TV. You had TV stations who did air it facing quite immediate consequences, having their cable position moved and so on. Uh, and it's one part of a spectrum of censorship. You had a similar kind of direct censorship over... Um, the campaigning by Nawaz Sharif, who was the prime minister until last year, uh, who's also tried to to call out the military and, and assert civilian power. So th- those two kind of um, prongs of, of a challenge to the military authority were both um, really, really ramped up an atmosphere of censorship. Manzoor's movement has, as you say, despite all the uh, the censorship, despite the political constraints, the fact that he's been... Uh, arrested, he's been held at checkpoints, uh, unable to make some of his own rallies at times. It's become a national movement, and yet, and it stayed peaceful. Mm. Um, how long can it remain peaceful? Because obviously, he's not the only man involved in this movement. There are others as well. Do you get the sense that there are some within the group that think actually there is a limit to what we can do by remaining non-violent? Yeah, so when I interviewed him for this piece, actually, he said that um, often on his kind of social media uh, posts and so on, he gets a lot of supporters saying, um, kind of questioning the the approach of nonviolence and that it's a constant battle to kind of enforce why this is a good idea. Uh, but I think he's quite aware that that's partly partly where the the power of their appeal lies and that they're they're kind of rejecting state violence in quite an explicit way and and also the whole kind of weight of stereotype that is on this ethnic group they're seen as kind of violent warriors and uh, since since 9/11 and and the ensuing rise of terror groups in Pakistan as um as somehow being inherently suspect when it comes to to extremism and so he really does want to defy that stereotype um but that said, I think in the in the last couple of months, um, as they've had basically no response really at all to their to their key demands, which are actually very kind of reasonable when you hear it, you know. It's yeah, they're that, not talking about the overthrow of government. Or, no, yeah. they're, they're asking for all kind of in people who've been forcibly disappeared to be brought before the, a court of law and for their families to get updates. Um, they're asking for. Uh, police officers who've been directly involved in extrajudicial killings to face justice um, and they're asking for landmines to be cleared basically uh, so you know it's not it's not groundbreaking no, stuff no it's <laughs> sort of the, the, the building blocks yeah. of a democracy really exactly so that's what they're asking for but I think the complete absence of any kind of acknowledgement of those of those demands you know they're not asking for all prisoners to be freed for instance they're asking uh, for due process, uh, so I think that I think there's a level of frustration, uh, particularly when coupled with, uh, firstly, the censorship, secondly, um, the use of of kind of bureaucratic obstacles, which again is is quite a, a kind of common 
thing that you see in in countries that aren't entirely comfortable with democratic participation you've got things like um you know they're they're being told that having permissions withdrawn for rallies and so on so that there was a big rally in august uh, where the permission was withdrawn they went ahead with the rally anyway and now there's arrest warrants out for a load of their uh, leaders including manzor actually uh, for for speaking at this rally illegally and a very very prominent human rights activist gulalai ismail who was in london for a meeting she'd also spoken at the rally she she's a you know she's founded a women's rights charity she's quite internationally known in the ngo sector flew back into islamabad and was arrested uh, at the airport uh, over this um over this rally uh, she's been released now but you know that's that's the kind of um that's the kind of climate so you've seen uh, Manzor and a few other core committee members sort of speaking vaguely about maybe we'll need to change our approach and sort of hinting at perhaps um you know not explicitly talking about violence but the, the two key things really are that they're non-violent and that they're not separatists Pakistan's got a lot of uh, kind of low-level separatist insurgencies and they're not separatists but they're, they're talking vaguely about you know maybe someday we'll need to change this approach. Let's talk a bit more broadly about the political situation in Pakistan. Imran Khan uh, won the elections in July. He's become the new prime minister. Um, obviously, you know, here in the UK, there's a view about Imran Khan, uh, about what he's like. He's He was in the past seen as this sort of pro-Western figure. Um, but that view is somewhat outdated, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. He's, um, I think, first and foremost, he's a populist, but he's also certainly in his own identity undergone uh, something of a transformation, I think, over the last couple of decades since entering politics in, I think it was 1996, it was quite a while ago that he founded his party. Uh, He talks more and more uh, about his... Uh, Islamic identity. Um, he's become increasingly uh, religious. He certainly talks about religion more. Um, in the last election in 2013, he was, you know, saying he'd end all um, American drone strikes and shoot the drones down and, and various things like that. So um, I think, you know, part of that is about um, it's a kind of nationalism and um, kind of shoring up his political identity through religion, and part of it is um, is populism. The anti-American positions are pretty popular in Pakistan. And what's happened since he took power? Have there been any big changes so far? Uh, not a huge amount, really. So he, in in classic kind of populist style, he uh, he promised to end corruption in ninety days, I think, uh, which I think we we might be hitting quite soon. I don't think corruption's ended. Uh, he also promised to create ten million jobs in five years. Again, not clear how that's going to happen. Um, in terms of his actions, uh, not a huge amount's happened. He he's made a few announcements on policies which seem quite progressive. So for instance, giving citizenship to the many, many Afghan uh, refugees and Bangladeshis who've been there, some some of whom for 30 years and don't have um, full kind of rights and citizenship status and then quickly reeled back when there's any kind of backlash so he's quite known for um for u-turns so not a huge amount's happened apart from pakistan as um having an economic crisis and is going to have to go to the imf that kind of predates imran khan but he's the one who's having to having to go cap in hand and in terms of human rights issues to do with specifically the pashtuns has there been any movement at all? Because, I mean, he was one of those who, as you mm. say, gave a bit of lip service towards the PTM's demands during the election. 
Yeah, he did. Uh, and that was early on. It was in April, so a couple of months before the election. Uh, and not uh, he said that he felt that their demands are reasonable. He's, he pledged to raise it with the army chief. And he also, um, in some areas of Waziristan, where a uh, couple of PTM um, core members were standing as independent candidates, he didn't field uh, candidates from his own party there as a gesture of goodwill. So, there's, you know, that's... Um, it seemed like uh, he was really offering support, um, which may have been a canny political move because he, he's quite popular in northwestern Pakistan, um, which is where they're where they're rooted. Um, there's been very very little movement since then. Um, Imran Khan's election was widely seen as uh, being quite fixed by the military. The EU um, election observing mission said that it wasn't a level playing field because there just was simply a lot more coverage of Imran Khan because all the other parties were facing pretty direct censorship. Uh, so he's kind of seen as the as the army's man, the army's preferred choice. So it doesn't seem that likely, coupled with the fact he has a, a very, very slim parliamentary majority. So it's not a kind of strong position to be in. It doesn't seem that likely that we're going to see substantial changes on that front. Um, your piece has done very well for us um, and uh, not just obviously in the magazine but online as well um, what was fascinating when we were uh, looking at the figures just before we spoke this morning was um, that about two thirds of the readers are from Pakistan mm. themselves do you feel like there's a there's a hunger inside Pakistan for news uh, for you know for long essays about what's happening in their country which at the moment um, a lot of the mainstream media in Pakistan aren't able to provide Definitely. Yeah, I've had a really overwhelming response um, to the piece, actually. And I think uh, I think it's partly that the subject matters touched a nerve and that there really is so much censorship around it. So it's very, very difficult to get uh, kind of substantial reports and um, kind of input on it from from Pakistan's top writers. I think it's, newspapers just don't want to go near it. And so there really does seem to be an appetite for that. Um, and I think a, a kind of awareness that, you know, people are digitally savvy and online and and can see that their media climate's changing there's a real um, appetite to to get that kind of in-depth analysis and without the kind of um uh muddying propaganda that goes on on both sides when it's solely social media based information so you know if you're just getting the information from uh the ptm's twitter accounts plus a load of uh, pro-military trolls or whatever so i think there definitely is an appetite to to get beyond that censored environment I just want to ask you what you think um, the governments here in Britain and in the US could, in a more perfect world, try to do um, to help the these non-violent uh, movements, political movements inside Pakistan. Were they to offer any sort of support, would that actually be counterproductive? Are there things that they should be doing to try and put pressure on the government, on the military? Mm. Yeah, it's a really difficult question, actually, because, um, as I mentioned, uh, the kind of anti-American, anti-Western sentiment is certainly there. And one of the criticisms that's often levelled against the the group for uh, the kind of official counter-narrative is that they're funded by foreign intelligence agencies and so on. So I think that's, as always, that's a very tricky question. Um, I think that they certainly would like some sort of, uh, I think, vocal support from international bodies and pressure on the government uh, rather than funding, but pressure on the government that way to kind of acknowledge that these are quite basic demands. You know, a lot of this is um, it's in international human rights framework, some of which Pakistan is signed up to. Uh, so I think um, that that kind of um, that kind of action would be more useful. Uh, but the other difficult thing is that, you know, a lot of this is rooted in Pakistan's entry into the war on terror of course 
that goes alongside a scant regard for for human rights and civil rights i think but but this is um it's not entirely divorced from the West. In fact, it's quite intimately connected to the war in Afghanistan, to Pakistan's commitments as a, you know, an unstable ally to the West, but an ally nonetheless. And this is their kind of way of meeting that demand. And, and one of the pressures on people in the tribal areas is not just the, the militants and the military incursions, it's Western drone strikes. Okay, we'll leave it there. Samira Shackle, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Samira Shackle there speaking to Steve Bloomfield. And to read Samira's piece, visit our website at prospectmagazine.co.uk where you will find all sorts of great stuff on domestic politics, global affairs, as well as arts, culture, science and more. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir Rahim and Alex Dean here in the studio. And the November edition of Prospect featuring Samira's article is in the shops now, so be sure to grab a copy. The producer of this broadcast was Jay Elwes. Thanks so much for listening and please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast. It really helps other listeners find us. Be sure to join us again next time for the Prospect Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.